0: Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, And on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer facing startups. If you're enjoying the show, if you could please leave a review on the Apple podcast app as it helps other folks find the show, that would be really helpful. Please note this episode was recorded prior to the global pandemic. Our guest today is David Goldberg, general partner at Coridge Ventures. Coridge Ventures is a New York-based venture capital firm leading seed-stage investments in the founders defining the future of daily living. Some of their investments include Perch Interactive, The Inside, ClassPass, and Imperfect Foods. Previously, David was the founder and CEO of Freshneck, an online subscription-based men's neckwear exchange service. He was also the assistant district attorney representing the people of Brooklyn, New York, and then worked at Merrill Lynch and Jeffries & Co. It was great fun chatting with David about the shared economy, personalization, consumerization of enterprise software, and much, much more. So without further ado, here's David. Thank you so much for taking the time, especially on a Friday afternoon. How are you?
1: I'm well, thanks, Mike. How are you?
0: Very well. So tell me a little bit about how you went from being a criminal defense attorney to transitioning to finance and eventually founding (laughs) Freshneck.com.
1: Yeah, so obviously that's not a traditional smooth path. I'd love to tell you that I had some long, intricate plan and it was all connected and well thought out. That wasn't the case. I'd probably call them more like hard pivots. Um, But the thread throughout was really optimizing for levels of autonomy, you know, often running sort of my own business, even if under a large umbrella like, you know, the government where I ran my own caseload in finance, Merrill Lynch where I ran my own book of business. And I guess I just kept moving further and further down the entrepreneurial scale until I was really just neck
0: deep in it. What were, I guess, your early impressions or early attraction to entrepreneurship?
1: Yeah, I, so I actually knew very little about it, right? So you need to rewind. When I started ideating on Freshneck, it was probably 2009, maybe early 2010, right? So you did not have, especially in New York, a really robust ecosystem. You didn't have any content. There were no podcasts, let alone focused on things as like intricate as like consumer. And, you know, I was running a book of business at Merrill Lynch and, and my strategy was to work with entrepreneurs. So you know, the goal was how do I find people soon to have liquidity events who had built really, really amazing businesses. And really what I found personally was that I was more interested in their underlying businesses and where they came from than I was, you know, the potential wealth and liquidity that would actually come from it. So from there, you know, just your basic networking with other interesting people and entrepreneurs. And then I think the ultimate origination story of Freshneck was not dissimilar from many others of I had my own personal pain point around basically not having money to buy the clothes that I wanted to buy. And so I had gotten connected early on in my career with the uh, founders behind Rent the Runway and I really enjoyed what they were doing around the collaboration economy I was inspired by this fact that you didn't actually need to have a technology background to build a startup. That was a pretty novel concept back then. And so, you know, I did a lot of user testing in the real world before ultimately kind of jumping with two feet in and and just testing this out.
0: What attracted you then to maybe start angel investing and eventually work your way on the other side of the table in terms of venture capital? Yeah,
1: so I'd say the... uh, The reason for the angel investing was necessity, right? So I was coming out of my company sale, still working part-time as an earn out there, so I couldn't take a full-time gig, was really passionate about startups. So I started working as a consultant for very early stage startups, helping them with everything from marketing and branding to -to go-to-market strategy, financial models, and ultimately helping them find sources of funding. Um, What I realized pretty early was that very few of them could actually pay me my full rate. So I started taking equity to make up the difference. Uh, Wasn't very good at the picking early on. I didn't know much about venture and the nuances of the different sectors and the business models. Um, So I I, I got a, a crash course
0: uh, in training. Got it. That's great. That's great. And so tell me about how uh, a Corrigin came together. Yeah. So
1: I was introduced to my now partner, Ryan, uh, this was either late 2013 and early 2014. It's kind of crazy thinking that it's been over six years. And originally we hit it off personally, as I think we shared values and outlooks as we built a relationship and dug deeper. We aligned on our experiences as first-time entrepreneurs, you know. And even though we built very, very different types of businesses—myself, more of a consumer tech company; Ryan, more of an old-school, traditional operating company in real estate—you know—we really aligned on this this idea and fact that we both struggled with some of the same things, right? These foundational business strategies and best practices, right? Everything from how do you hire people and build out the right culture? How do you find out what the right type of funding strategy and sources of capital are? How do you build out internal operating systems? And so ultimately we, we kind of threw this idea around with a bunch of founder friends that we knew and realized we all struggled with very similar things. So we started ideating on what is now Corrigent Ventures which ultimately was meant to be the firm that we had wish we partnered with as first time founders.
0: That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, like the similar pain points for entrepreneurs, especially due to like hiring and knowing where to start, that's something that um, on this show we actually also hope to uh, explore that area. One of our previous episodes we had Matt Hirsch from West where. What he talks about is he's he um he works in brand and uh, brand and marketing for our early age startups, and he talks about what I think was interesting in our conversation. How he says, you know, a lot of founders and a lot of VC, well, a lot of VCs look to, you know, um, one of the things is um, for founders, what talent are you able to attract to your startup? And you might see people that have, you know, Google on the resume or Facebook or one of the large tech companies. But actually, might not actually be the right hires for the position. You know, they're uh, people that might be used to you know working with big budgets, but but startup, of course, it's a very very different beast and animal. I'd love to like I'd love to just kind of dig in a little bit on on how you think about um, not to target like those companies directly or anything like that, but just how you think about when founders hire talent, what kind of traits do you think that that they should look for?
1: That's a it's a great question, and and it's interesting. You brought up a point, and I think there's two components to it, right? One is, how do we evaluate as investors, founders, and let's call it their ability to hire? We often think about that more as like an ability and a skill set to inspire and recruit, right? You don't have any data. You don't have a lot of funding. How do you get someone to take a big pay cut to come work for you? And I think it's a really strong indicator. But on the other side, you actually have this skill of how do you first figure out what is needed at your company, like what is the right role and skill set, and then actually how do you find those people. And in reality, if you think about a lot of the backgrounds, a lot of folks who are founding companies, like maybe you're coming from consulting or banking, in which case you likely have very little managerial experience, or maybe you came and like worked at a startup, depending how long you were there, maybe you hired two or three people, right? So. It's one of the most important skills, though it's probably one of the ones that is most lacking, at least in first-time entrepreneurs. And it's a muscle that needs to get flexed very quickly out of the gate. And it's one that we don't believe because of that should actually be outsourced to investors. But that's probably a topic for another day. I mean, I, I think in terms of your your more direct question of what is the right hire and skill set, I'm gonna cop out and take the easy answer of like. It depends. Um, It really really depends on the type of role, the type of current skill sets that are at the company, right? If you have generalists, maybe you want to hire specialists. If you have specialists, maybe you want some more generalists. And there's also a culture aspect to it. So, at Corrigent Ventures, one of the things that we do, instead of taking the approach of helping you fish, if you will, of like, hey, we're going to find you, your VP of engineering, your head of business development, we spend a little bit more time up front on the process, right? Let's understand working backwards from what you want to accomplish, who may be the right type of person in the right role, and let's help you scorecard that role and build out a process to then find the right person.
0: I don't think that's a cop-out at all. So your seed stage investors, what are some milestones that companies and founders need to achieve in order for you to consider investing?
1: There's not much in terms of milestones, right? At the end of the day, so like what are we looking for? We're looking for significant problems and opportunities in large monetizable markets where founders have some unique insight or advantage to take it on. And in many cases, there are no true data-based milestones that have yet been hit to help give us that, right? It's, it's really all through a pitch and storytelling and through the background of a founder of how they came upon a problem and what their solution uh, is set to tackle it on. Now, sometimes we need validation of certain components of that, and that's where some of the milestones will come in, but very rarely do we say anything, well, you need to get to 50K or whatever of monthly revenue, before we're interested. If anything, to go back to what you mentioned earlier, one of the biggest milestones is, have you proven that you can uh, inspire some really incredible people to work with you? And that could be both on the employee side as well as the customer side.
0: In terms of the actual insights, like do you consider yourselves more top-down, thesis-driven investors or or more so bottom-up investors?
1: I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. I I think of us a bit as a hybrid of the two, right? So we, I consider us thematic investors. And what do I mean by that is really at heart, we're generalists. We have a couple of very high level themes that we look to things around consumer products and services. We do a lot of real estate technology. We look at marketplaces, e-commerce infrastructure and logistics. And then over time, and these could be kind of short 90-day sprints all the way through two to three-year fund cycles, we'll dig a little bit deeper into themes or subsectors of those higher-level things, right? So things like the sharing economy, personalization and customization, digital health. Um, We just did a recent deep dive into a couple different aspects around construction technology. So I think that's where the themes come. Now, whether you are a generalist or sector-focused, I think there's a specific founder archetype that at least we often look for that, again, is either something in their background that gives them a competitive advantage, or at least, as you phrased it, this unique insight in how they're thinking about it. And the reason for this is one, you want to make sure that they're the right founders, that they have an advantage, and that in these days, like everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. There's a lot of money and a lot of smart people why this person and this founder over somebody else is really often a difficult question to answer.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I imagine as well, like the advantages of, you know, being thematic in that you, you, you're focused on particular areas is that you can also focus on building out your networks for those areas, right? Maybe for, for maybe really talented operators that might be looking for a new role. Would you mind just walking me through um, your due diligence process as well at the seed stage? So
1: let me work backwards. Um, we run a lot of data on this. It takes us about 30 days from first meeting to ultimately get to a term sheet for the companies that make it all the way through our process, right? So you're talking about relatively a pretty quick period of time to really dig in, right? And at the end of the day, what are we trying to solve for? We really want to understand the team. We want to understand the market they're tackling. And then we want to understand the nuances of their specific product and business model. The way that we do it is through what we call our 19 factor matrix. So we ditched a while ago like our long form memo and move to this more spreadsheet based matrix the goal of this is to really pinpoint as a team um, where we believe we already have enough information and have conviction where we still have more time to spend and diligence to do and where no matter how much time we spend we will never be able to figure that out and it's very important because with a lack of data in seed stage investing, you could spend weeks, months, hours and hours of debates of talking about things that you're just never going to get clarity to. So be able, so upfront as a team to align on what's really important and what information do we need sort of the crux of our process. Now, how do we actually do it? It's through a series of in-person meetings, phone calls, questions, uh, References and blind references, primary and secondary research, uh, ultimately kind of running a very basic funnel type approach.
0: Got it. No, thank you. Th- th- thanks for that clarity. So I know that you you, you listed a few uh, trends um, earlier uh, that you're uh, focused on, or maybe changes in be- consumer behavior that you're uh, you're interested in. I wanted to talk first about wh- what you think about you know personalization and customization because. In my mind, I know it, I know it's one of the areas that you're uh, you're focused on, and, and in my mind, it's how do you scale a company that is differentiator, is, is personalizer, or customizable products?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So I, I think part of it is understanding what does personalization or customization mean to you, right? I think there's a gradient scale of personalization, right, from truly one-of-a-kind, handcrafted goods. You know, to something maybe more mass customized. You know, maybe it just looks like monogramming a customer's name on a garment, right? And you know, keep in mind I, the way that I think about the terms like services can also be personalized, not just products. But I think two separate forces have made this an area of interest on a venture scale for me. Right? One is the shifting of customer preferences and behaviors and valuing things that are, or at least are perceived to be personalized. And then two, some technology changes and supply chain improvements that allow certain things to be done cheaper. Um, What am I looking for? And I think this hits directly at the point that you're making. When I look at an investment that has some type of personalization, uh, I'm looking for a significant delta in the perceived value to a customer versus the cost to provide. And so what do I mean by that? I'm looking for something where the customer actually has that feeling that you just had. Like, wow, this is one of a kind. I can't believe I was able to get this at this cost. It's truly personalized. We're really on the back end. They have like one extra machine or one extra addition to a workflow to make it happen. So they're actually not spending additional crazy dollars. It's not harming their ability to scale, but you have very high perceived value of that personalization the opposite of that which would be uninvestable in my hands is a very complicated expensive workflow on the background and i'm just like yeah that's a nice to have
0: yeah i was thinking initially about you know very complex uh, supply chains i know that another one of your areas that you're focusing on as well is uh, the sharing economy how do you how do you think that the sharing economy is going to evolve it's a good
1: question i mean so first of all right this has been an interest of mine since even before I started Freshneck now, almost a decade ago, I think we're seeing that evolution right now. And there's a couple of driving forces, right? One, there's an obvious push in every industry and category towards sustainability and conscious consumption, right? Two, there's an appreciation in, you know, younger customers, we'll call them millennials. It's an appreciation of experiences and access over ownership of material goods. Right. Three, I think we've seen a destigmatization around sharing and rental, and then four, you know, we're actually now seeing some really good experienced operators who have come from other companies like Uber, Rent the Runway, Airbnb, who have been leaders in the sharing economy. Right. So um, you're bringing a lot of knowledge and know-how to the ecosystem. So I, I think we we are right now kind of at that point of time. Well, you see a lot of innovation and really incredible companies being created over the next couple of years. What does that evolution look like? Like one, I think we'll see kind of crazy new ideas, right? Categories that five, 10 years ago, there's no way the sharing economy would have gone to, right? So bigger and bigger purchases, we're already starting to see furniture. You can imagine automobiles, maybe even like your primary homes in some kind of crazy way that I'm not even thinking about today. Then the other evolution is probably like deeper into use cases, right? So I think Rent the Runway is a perfect example. For the first five or six years, it was a once in a while, special occasion, You know, I have a wedding or formal, and I'm gonna rent a dress. Fast forward to today, I think their biggest business unit is their unlimited model, where this is now taking over the everyday wear, sort of the everyday lifestyle of their customers. And I think that's a pretty dramatic shift when you can say, Hey, like this has actually changed my behavior at a at a very core level.
0: Yeah, I know. I think that is that is really fascinating. I mean, one of it's funny because I um, rent the runway uh, the last uh, through my last couple of conversations have have uh, uh, has come up a bit because um, and I'm sorry, you're my you're my latest victim for this. But I was I was thinking about you know two trends that I'm noticed in the past few years, which aren't you know eye opening at all. But one is fast fashion, where the picture has become, you know, the most uh, kind of like the most vital medium in in terms of like, you know, sharing pictures on Instagram and making sure that the younger consumer, making sure that you're not wearing the same outfit in each in each picture. So and so, you know, fast fashion has come to make since a lot more pictures online to make sure that you have a different outfit right each time you go out. Um, So it's buying a lot of clothes uh, cheap, at least at least that's how that's how I think about it. Um, But then you also have like this very conscious driven consumer as well. And you see, you see a number of these uh, fashion brands uh, come up and apparel brands that are very um, eco-friendly and really thinking about the environment where fast fashion doesn't uh, tackle that. What I, what I find interesting about Rent the Runway is that it's in some ways kind of a hybrid how I'm seeing it it's kind of a hybrid of, of these two major themes uh, or trends where you can you, you can rent these garments for you know you, you rent these garments so you're able to wear different clothes each time you go out um, but at the same time it's a bit more uh, you know eco-friendly right because you're renting and not buying them so
1: yeah we're seeing that across categories beauty furniture any other consumer good I mean I think we're, we're at the beginning of a, a pretty game shifting wave there
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. And then another term that I see floating, floating around is the consumerization of software. I wanted to know what that means to you. My understanding of
1: like the traditional definition is more for enterprise software and moving from, you know, traditionally old school, very clunky, bad looking, you know, you need a week to onboard and you need a 70 page user manual to, to now a user experience that one would uh, equate with a consumer-type company, right? So maybe a good example is I know you and I are using Zoom right now, right? That's enterprise software. But if you think about, like, if you remember the first time you used it, like, oh, easy link, very quick, couple of drop-downs. They have some really nice-looking icons. Like, that, to me, is a great example of the traditional consumerization of software. I. I don't know if others use the term to talk about this, but if you think about the flip side of that, so instead of taking um, best practices and traits from consumer companies and moving to the enterprise software, what we're also seeing is what I would call business-like software. Think about like productivity software like Microsoft Excel now moving in different forms where individuals are using for their personal use cases, right? So, you know, using Excel, the counter to that would probably be Airtable. Things like Superhuman um, or Notion, right? Mint may be one on like the personal finance side that was probably an early adopter there, right? But where consumers are willing to pay what I'd call like a subscription like, uh, or not even like, it, it, to pay a subscription fee and pay, you know, $20, $30 a month for personal productivity software um, to really just use by themselves. And one of the fascinating trends that I've seen over the past couple months, I don't know if you've seen is like uh, some of these companies that are pure software, which was traditionally pretty boring, have built out real brands for themselves and have built out these cult like followings. Uh, Superhuman is probably the best example there. I mean, they built out a waiting list where people were referring it to one another just to move up higher on the list. And, you know, they were sharing it on, on social media. Like I'd never seen that before where people took such pride in the software that they were yeah, using. Yeah,
0: I think that's a great point. Thanks for explaining how that how that trend can go both ways. I completely agree with you about superhumid the waiting list and how excited people get from it. How do you think about the future of venture capital?
1: So it's interesting. I, I think there's a lot of talk about how venture is changing rapidly and like how our jobs can be automated or like given to the crowds. We heard a lot of this, you know, probably two years ago or so during like the big ICO boom that came and went pretty quickly. I think this is a bit overblown. I view venture, especially at the very early stages as a service business. That's actually on the negative side, it's hard to scale, but on the positive side, that also means it's pretty hard to replace, right? It's very relationship based. There's often very little data that drive decisions. So ironically, while we invest in industries and models that we are hoping and betting on changing very rapidly, I think our own industry is a bit of a laggard, right? There's not a lot of software. There's not a lot of technology used. It's very network-driven and kind of gut instinct-driven.
0: That makes a lot of sense. What do you think about, in terms of expectations from VCs, because uh, we went through a period of growing at all costs, it seems in the past few years, and now, at least from you know some of the blog posts that I'm reading, and and there's a lot bigger emphasis on all right, when are you actually going to be profitable as a as a company? I know at the seed stage, I'd imagine you're not as concerned yet with profitability because it's so early. But do you do you sense a bit of a change in behavior?
1: I am definitely sensing it, like. And what's a little weird to me is I'm not just sensing it in late stage companies of these multi-billion dollar startups that like have no path to profitability and they're, they're driving change there, which I think is healthy. The surprising part of me is that I'm seeing it in companies that haven't even launched yet or that have you know, six figures of revenue and, and people start talking about profitability. And, you know, at the end of the day, venture is about putting in a dollar today to get out multiple dollars in the future. And the best companies need both growth and eventual profitability. But the key word there is eventual, right? This doesn't mean that you need to be cash flow positive today, but you do likely at least need positive unit economics or at least a very quick path there. And at the end of the day, like what does a smart investor need to do it's not make blanket statements. And it's to really understand the nuances of every single individual business and business model.
0: Got it. So has this, with this kind of sense that you're seeing, has this changed the way how you analyze startups or or not at all?
1: It does a little bit, right? Unfortunately, while on one side, venture capital is about like being contrarian and having conviction. We also act in this assembly line of capital where if nobody later stage and bigger than us also believes in what's happening the company's going to run out of money so you can't be all the way on the other side or at least you kind of need the market consensus to to catch up by the time they get there so you know we think about how much companies are burning how long they can last contingency plans we have always thought about unit economics at a very basic level so that's not a big shift for us but we probably would not invest in a company that was like a pure social network that was all about growth and top line vanity metrics that didn't have a plan for monetization and eventual profitability.
0: Talking with um Elizabeth Yin, who she invests at Hustle Fund in uh, like pre-seed, very early, and 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 she actually says the one model that she does not invest in purely is is advertising. Yeah, I think
1: we feel pretty similar, and we don't do a ton of B two B businesses like like Elizabeth does, but we also prefer direct revenue businesses, right? So where the value that you're giving to your customer is also returning how you're getting paid versus indirectly through selling data or selling ads.
0: Got it. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally?
1: So there's a book and we literally have it on our shelves here at the office and everybody reads it. That's a pretty important part of what we do, which is called Measure What Matters by John Doerr. Um, We are very focused on OKRs. We use them internally as a VC firm. And we spend a lot of time guiding many of our portfolio founders in similar exercises, right? At the end of the day, focus and priority um, we believe are everything. And time is is the one non-renewable asset that you know a lot of our founders have. You can always get more cash. So making sure that everybody is transparent and aligned on working towards the same high-level goals is really important. And there's a real skill and practice towards working through that.
0: Great. Yeah, no, that's, that's excellent. I, um, I unfortunately have not read that book yet, but it's actually, but it, but it is on my list. So, uh, so thanks.
1: It's great. It's, it's a little dense, you know, but, but it's, it was a bit of a game changer for us. And, and I know you also mentioned personally, and this one's a bit of a, a cheat, um, but it, the book is reboot by Jerry Colonna. Um, And it was less so, sort of, the impact that the book itself had on me, but rather I spent three days with the author, Jerry, at one of his uh, boot camps that was called VC Reboot. Not sure if you've heard of it, but it's sort of this three day deep intensive. And when I went there, I thought I was getting into, like, how do I be a better investor and a better board member? Uh, But in reality, it was really about, you know, how to be a better human. It was basically therapy. It was about like radical self-inquiry. Um, and I came out of that really learning so much about myself that obviously wind up having tons of personal and professional implications.
0: That's great. That's really great. Um, I, I don't think I've actually heard of reboot, but I'll certainly have to check it out. I mean, it sounds, I think anything that can, that can impact you personally, even more important than it it can also uh, creep into the pro- uh, professional side as well. And, and I, think, I think it can certainly be a lot more impactful. What's your most recent investment and what makes you excited about it? Ah, uh, we just closed an investment yesterday and I,
1: I double checked because I knew we were going to do that this call. I wasn't sure if you would ask that. So I made sure that I could share it, which I can. Uh, the company is called Arrive. They're based out of LA. They are an outdoor travel company that makes it easy for anyone to experience the outdoors. Now, what does that mean? They are a sharing economy rental company for outdoor gear, think camping and skiing equipment. I'm excited about it because one, you know, as we discussed, I'm a big believer in the sharing and rental economy. And I think outdoor gear is the perfect use case. People want experiences. They don't have the space or the money to go buy this stuff. And second, um, it's really because of their distribution channel. Right? So what they do is instead of trying to find individual customers on Facebook, Instagram, whatever, they partner with both parks for camping and then mountains for skiing to get in front of their customer at the point of booking. So imagine when you book an airline flight and you get that little checkbox that you need to uncheck about, do you want insurance? Um, they don't have to pay anything for customer acquisition. It's right at the time of purchase. So this is what they want to do and have started executing upon for their category.
0: That's amazing. Wow, I will certainly have to check out check out Arrive. Um I cannot yeah, um and, and they're right in my backyard here in LA, so uh so I definitely need to uh for uh, certainly check them out. That sounds really really innovative. So what's what's one piece of advice that you have for for founders of consumer companies?
1: So I guess to to continue to play on what I liked about Arrive so much is I would I would caution all consumer founders to really rethink distribution. Um, unless you have a very unique product that has you know, immediate payback or just off the charts frequency, it will be very hard to make the economics work at scale with traditional digital acquisition. Um, I think we're just at the beginning of you know, Facebook and Instagram becoming untenable channels uh, for many consumer companies out there.
0: I completely agree. I saw a Twitter post the other day that said first time founders like 80% product, 20% distribution and then like second time fo- product second time founders they focus on like 80% distribution, like 20% product. So of course it's kind of just it's kind of just showing like the importance of distribution that you really need to think about.
1: There's there's probably a very interesting correlation if you replace the word founder with investor, I think it still holds.
0: Yeah, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Well, David This has been phenomenal. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. This was fun. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having David on, and I really hope you enjoyed hearing all his great insights. You can follow David on Twitter at David R. Goldberg. That will also be located in the show notes. If you're a founder and working on something innovative, have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit the ConsumerVC.com. Thanks again for listening and please stay safe, folks.